Hello, and welcome from the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn in Ontario, Canada. Join us this week as Pastor John Blackman shares from the book of 1 Corinthians. One is, uh, you know, we have people watching from uh, online and at home regularly. One of those this morning is Tanya, who's actually not watching from down at Princess Margaret, but watching from her house because she was... Uh, healthy enough in, to be able to get her one week respite before she goes back in for more treatment. So keep praying for Tanya, and uh, we're glad that you're with us. Uh, you know, even as Scott was praying this morning, I want to share a testimony that I heard this week. Uh, my, my youngest was at the house for the day, and uh, three-year-old Heidi was downstairs, and the streaming device wasn't working, so she couldn't watch her show. So Jesse sent me down there, and I came down and fixed it. She goes, oh, thanks, Grandpa. You're... you're the best one, or something like this. And I go, yeah, I'm pretty great, right? She goes, yeah. And I go, but not as good as Jesus. And uh, she said, yeah. She said, because we're sinners. <laughs> she says, three-year-old Jesse. I go, oh, what is that? I mean, he uh, Heidi, I said, what does that mean? She goes, oh, well, like we do bad things, and then like the grown-ups have to talk to us. And I said, but grown-ups are sinners too, right? She goes, yeah. And that's why we need Jesus. She says, yeah. That, and he puts a new heart in us. So pretty good for a three-year-old starting to grasp. So when you pray for our children, you know, out in Sunday school and things like that, little seeds like that grow. So I thought that, I thought that was a pretty good testimony. All right. Remember January 22nd? Because that's the last time we were discussing the letter we call 1 Corinthians. And uh, previously when we took such a long break, I treated you to cartoons on the first Sunday back for review, and you have no such luck today. We had just finished a long and often repeating section in uh, chapters um, 9 and 10 at least uh, regarding meat sacrifice to idols, which we learned because we were in it for about three or four weeks. We learned that that discussion really wasn't about meat sacrifice to idols as much as it was really about freedom sacrificed for the greater good of building up the body of Christ and displaying Jesus as the center of all life. And that was done even by the way we exercise or cling to our freedom and our own rights, and even how and what and where we eat. Um, it also involved clear moral exhortation from Paul that the Corinthians had no business eating in pagan temples, because one of his points was, well, idols aren't really real. Uh, something, there are real evil spirits and demons behind these false gods that uh, are real and are all worthy of, uh, you know, being careful. And so he summarized that whole section at the uh, end of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I'm just going to read the last few verses because it just flows beautifully into the next section. So Paul summarized all of that teaching that we did for a number of weeks, and he said this, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't give offense to Jews or Gentiles or the church of God. So what other people think and see by what you do does matter. He said, uh, I too try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what's best for me. I do what's best for others so that many may be saved. And you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. And if you remember our review um, video from the Bible Project, 1 Corinthians is divided up into five sections, and today we're just going to start right away bleeding into section number four. And this one now is all about 
the gathered worship service. When church is together, when people are together, um, we've changed the name of Potluck Sunday to the gathering meal for these very kinds of reasons. It's, it's a specific time and place and context. And everything that Paul's going to talk about now is that even by the way we gather and the way we worship is important it, as a way to display Jesus as the center of all life. Um, way back in the fall of uh, 22, when we started this series, I talked about the concept that in the first century, it could be said, you are what you eat. You are, no, you are, that's the our saying, you are what you eat. In the first century, it's you are who you eat with. And a Christian worship service uh, in that century, by its very nature, would be very scandalous to people on the outside looking in. Because there are people from all races and classes mixing together in ways that just wasn't done out there in polite society. Um, we're we're going to be talking next week about the Lord's table, um, but today we're just going to take a look at the first half of chapter 11. And uh, in this section, the first half of chapter 11, we find some of the most ridiculously hard to interpret and apply verses you can imagine. And questions are in this passage that have remained unresolved for centuries. So if you just listen for the next 15 or 20 25 minutes, I'm going to answer all those questions. There will be no longer be any questions. Totally not. In fact, if this is a paragraph where if I heard someone claiming they had all the answers, I'd have to conclude they're pretty much delusional and clearly haven't even recognized the questions. But that is not to say there are not clear principles in this confusing, hard to understand, and very 2,000-year gap of changing cultures and customs and all kinds of things to figure out that there are some pretty clear ideas, teachings, principles in this passage that are probably in some ways more relevant in 2023 than they were in the first century. You know, we have a vision statement at our church and, and I've already quoted the, the slogan portion of it already this morning that we're to exist. We exist to display Jesus as the center of all life. That line fits really well with this passage we're going to look at. As confusing as the details are, that's kind of what Paul is trying to get at. That the way we gather together and interact and participate in worship should display Jesus as the center of all life. I'm, I'm more committed to that line today than I was 10 years ago. In the next few weeks, actually, all our passages are going to return to the idea that how we gather together in worship has a purpose. And that purpose is to point to, that's what we call display Jesus. And anything that we do that dishonors him, which could be sin, um, unself, I mean, sin, selfishness issues, any of those things are problematic. Um, anything that we do that distracts, distracts from that purpose, anything we do that distracts from that purpose should be avoided should be laid aside. Even cultural issues such as clothing or hairstyles, which are going to sound ridiculous to us 2,000 years later when we read this passage, um, on, are, they, they are about this same idea. On top of all that, there's a reminder in our passage that our relationships as men and women matter as well. The relationships that we have as men and women matters as well on displaying Jesus as the center of all life. Um, 
the famous uh, gap theory I wrote down. That, that's something that I, I came upon and thought about. You know, when we think about displaying Jesus as the center of life, you can't really do it by yourself. It requires a community. At least there's that famous line we often where two or three are gathered together. I'm in, I'm there I am among them. You know, we cling to that sometimes on prayer meeting night. But it's this idea that between two Christians relating to one another, there's a display of Jesus in, as the center of all life that the world should be able to see. Because it's like, well, that's different. The way they treat one another, the way they talk to one another, I, I see something different there. There's, there's that gap. Well, I think that's in our passage here today. It's a reminder that that's really important. Uh, our, our passage has been abused in uh, gender wars and power struggles. Um, it, it, I don't think that its intention is as a proof text for cultural patriarchy, but it's a reminder of a created interdependence in God's design between men and women. That gender really matters. We're doing a Bible study right now called Love Thy Body, and, and you know, I may mention it uh, later today, but it, it's around this idea that how we were created and who we are is, has, a, has a message, has a purpose. And people should be able to see that. Um, it's a reminder of created interdependence in God's design. Maleness and femaleness should be celebrated, not only celebrated, but activated in how we relate to one another and worship together. I'm going to come back to that in my closing comments and, and by this suggestion that some of the enduring teachings in our passage are more relevant today, possibly, even than they were in Paul's day. Um, because our interactions are going to make it obvious that what's the authoritative position and understanding of relationships here in this community is under the authority of something else other than the culture out there. That's why we're going to stick out as spectacles if we practice uh, some of the things that Paul's recommending. Um, so, what are the confusing details in this passage? Paul has this long discussion about heads, what's on your head, who's the head of what and whom. If you want to take a simplistic view in what you read and say that this passage seems to be saying that all women are under the thumb or men are the boss of all women and better than women and all of that kind of stuff, you're going to have to really do some damage to the text because whatever Paul says about men and women in relationship, he has a parallel between God and Jesus, <laughs> right? So those two things are meant to reflect one another. So that kind of takes away that, uh, that issue um, or that confusion, um, We've spent a lot of time reviewing important creeds that emphasize the equality and worth of all three members of the Godhead. So like I say, whatever you conclude about what Paul means when he says the head of every woman is man should then probably be true about and the head of Christ is God. There's another pretty odd text in here that says woman is the glory of man. That's pretty hard to understand. It's hard from the text when you get into the original language to tell whether Paul's really talking about head coverings or hair. You can't tell if Paul's talking about a burqa or a bun. We can't even be really sure about why he's so concerned about it. He says something like this. He says this, for this reason and because the angels are watching, a woman should wear a covering on her head to show how she's under authority. Do some digging into that line, and I hope you've got some time on your hands. 
because people are divided. Is he talking about invisible spiritual angels that are overseeing and watching the service so that a woman should have her head covered by that? Or is it talking about messengers, visitors from another church? You might say, that sounds like a pretty... Angels is angels, right? Well, in, in the Revelation, there's famous seven letters to seven churches. And you'll see a line like Jesus saying to John, write this letter to the angel of the church of Smyrna. And, and almost everybody thinks that's talking about a human leader within that church, likely maybe the pastor shepherd of that congregation. So, you know, that could go either way. And I think that's primarily what Paul's talking about here. But I, it's something that I wouldn't say I could have 100% confidence about. Um, in order to make things even more complicated, this whole idea about hairstyles and dress, it's a, Corinth is a Hellenistic Greek history town, but it's really a Roman city, and these standards and things are different in Greek culture and Roman culture. You could even complicate it more um, beyond hairstyles, dress, head coverings, and the things that Paul's going to recommend aren't even in complete agreement with Jewish culture. Because everything Paul's going to say about men and women and what's on their heads is in the context of, well, they're delivering a prophetic word from God while they're delivering prophecy. Well, they're speaking in a combined worship service where men and women are together. And in your classic in the temple, there's the court of Gentiles, the court of women. In a typical synagogue, it's not the co-ed congregation that we have today. Um, so Paul is talking... Um, when he's just not talking on what Christians, uh, sister Christian should have uh, on her head while she brings a verbal prophetic proclamation or praise, it's while she's in this mixed congregation doing it. Um, so, are you confused enough? Well, welcome to my world. Let's read the passage. I'm so glad that you always keep me in your thoughts and that you're following the teachings I passed on to you. But there's one thing I want you to know. The head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. A man dishonors his head if he covers his head while praying or prophesying. But a woman dishonors her head if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head. For this is the same as shaving her head. Yes, if she refuses to wear a head covering, she should cut off all her hair. But since that is shameful for a woman to have her hair cut or her head shaved, she should wear a covering. A man should not wear anything on his head when worshiping, for man is made in God's image and reflects God's glory, and woman reflects man's glory. For the first man didn't come from woman, but the first woman came from man. And man was not made for woman, but woman was made for man. For this reason, and because the angels are watching, a woman should wear a head covering on her head to show she is under authority. Uh, one thing I'd want to recommend there is you can easily miss the point that she's not the only one in this scenario that's under authority. Everybody that's been described in this situation is under authority, uh, it seems, except God. <laughs> and everyone is under God's authority. I'll come back to that later. But among the Lord's people, women are not independent of men, and men are not independent of women. For although the first woman came from man, every other man was born from a woman, and everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it right for a woman to pray in, to God in public without covering her head? 
And isn't it obvious that it's disgraceful for a man to have long hair? A friend of mine sent me this slide this week from the internet. It must be true. Criminal who was caught cutting off 37 man buns and one day claims he was doing the Lord's work. It's, it's a joke, people. If I had an illustrated Bible, I would, that, that would be a picture in my illustrated Bible. Anyway, come on, it's funny. Cutting off man buns? Okay. We all, I could get an amen from that out there at all, anyway? All right. Judge for yourselves. Uh, okay, we had, it, it, isn't it obvious that it's disgraceful for a man to have long hair? And isn't long hair a woman's pride and joy? For it has been given to her as a covering. But if anyone wants to argue about this, I simply say that we have no other custom than this, and neither do God's other churches. So let's start out with verse number two, because there's just a really crucial, important principle in here that could get totally lost in uh, our head, hair, coverings, authority conversation. And that's this. Paul says... um, I'm so glad you always keep me in your thoughts. Other translations say remember. It's a, it's a better word. And that you are following the teachings I passed on to you. There's three words there. Remember, maintain, or follow. Remember, follow, and pass on. Remember, follow, pass on. Uh, are you a confessing Christian this morning? Like, do you claim... Um, that you've been saved by grace through faith in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, not by works that you've done, but according to God's mercy, he's saved you. If that's your testimony, if that's your claim, your confession, your hope, guess what? We could go all the way around the room sharing our testimonies and, uh, of how we came to faith in Christ, and uh, I, I would still argue no matter what, that the credit for every one of those testimonies, even whether the person's saying it or not, should ultimately always go back to God and his work by grace in our hearts and all of the things God does in that. You know, we're saved by grace. And uh, yet, interestingly, God uses an awful lot of human agents in this gracious accomplishment of his. It's been a 2,000-year gap between the time when Paul's writing this and when I came to faith in Christ, um, there were an awful lot of people that had to remember what the apostles taught, practiced it in faithful Christian communities. Think about it. For generation after generation, thousands of years, people were remembering and practicing the apostolic faith, and then they were sharing it. They were passing it on. Somebody passed it on to me, and guess what? Somebody before that had passed it on to them, and somebody had passed it on to them, and so on, and so on, and so on, all the way to, like, the the door of an empty tomb 2,000 years ago. We're going to be celebrating that at Easter. Um, You should be thanking God every day that they passed those things on. I don't want you to lose those three crucial actions as we get tangled up in hair conversations this morning. Remember, maintain, pass on. Those are three steps in the gospel dance that we're all called to and all indebted to. Like somebody did those things for us. Will that transmission of the message stop with you? Will, will you forget it? 
Will you contradict it, which is, I think, what we're going to be talking about in our worship practices in the time to come. Will you contradict the message you've remembered by the way that you live, um, uh, even if you know that message mentally? Now, will you fail to pass it on, to pass it on to your family, your, your children, your family, your friends, your associates, acquaintances, visitors, the disadvantaged, the marginalized, whoever you can think of? Will that process of remember, maintain, and pass on? Uh, are you going to be part of that circuit, part of that chain? Was it all meant to just drop into your lap <laughs> and end with you? We love to say, you know, we love, I, don't know, I don't love to say it, <laughs> but you'll hear people say, you know, if you were the only person in the world, Jesus would have died on the cross for you. There's probably some truth there, but you know what? It's a much bigger story than that. From before the creation of the world, God desired to have a people for himself. And this is part of that process. Um, I'm convinced that such things clarify what's at stake in the uh, permanent applications of the passage we're going to look at. So verse 3, there is one thing I want you to know. The head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. There's no way to deny it. That is a line about authority. And there are all kinds of debates and conversations and articles and, wow, a lot of ink has been spilled just in the, my time in full-time ministry and studying such things uh, over the use of the word head as being a, a, an authority or a source. You know, the source idea is down there in verse 8. You know, the first woman came from man, but all men come from woman. There's this idea of source, right? Uh, what do we mean by source? If you're swimming in Georgian Bay, you realize the water you're in came from Lake Superior, but it came from Lake Superior to Lake Huron through the St. Mary's River, and, and you could follow that same water and watch it fall over Niagara Falls, and then here you are swimming on it in, in Lake Ontario, maybe, if you have the guts to do such a thing as swim in Lake Ontario. Uh, there's, there's, that's not all that this is about, though. You can't deny that there's an authority here. There are lanes. There are appropriate kind of roles, actions, and in this case, even appearances for people in different lanes. There's a definite delineation of roles, but not worth here. And it represents an ultimate top, which is God the Father. Um, and you think about the, uh, the relationship of the Father to Son and the creeds we've been reading. It, it, the, their roles have nothing to do with who came first and who came second. That's where we get a little bit confused. Well, the man was created and the woman created for the man. So, you know, man was first. Woman's automatically on the bench or a lesser form because the man came first. Those same things don't apply here in, in father to son at all. So, so what's going on there? Um, there's nothing. We, we don't get caught up in arguments about who's better than the other when it comes to father of the son, who's worthy of more glory and worship. And their, their equality, the, the fact that we have been martyred over the centuries, hanging on to the idea that the father and son are, are completely equal, that's, that's why we're considered heretics by some of the other world religions and, and uh, some cults with Christian-like roots. Think of the realm of doctrine. Scott spent a great amount of worthwhile time attempting to familiarize you with the great creeds of 
church history. And they are especially focused on the doctrine of the Trinity because this is such a dropping off and a, a way to fall off the path of Orthodox Christian teaching. So imagine with all that we've talked about in the creeds, if uh, we started singing songs, preaching messages, uh, using visuals on our, on our board that kind of um, pitted one member of the Trinity against the other in their worth or portrayed them as if they're in some kind of eternal power struggle or started to describe them in distorted or, God forbid, immoral and profane ways, you would, I hope, cry foul pretty quickly and say these misrepresentations of the way the Father and Son relate to one another are confusing the gospel message. They're really distracting from how God's revealed his identity and plan and purpose. Well, Paul's kind of saying in this passage that in a worship service, a worship service scenario, a man and a woman can be interacting, presenting themselves in ways that are in conflict with how God's chosen to reveal himself through the image of God in man, that male and female we were created. Verse 4 says, A man dishonors his head if he covers his head while praying or prophesying, but a woman dishonors her head if she prays or prophesies without covering on her head. For this is the same as shaving her head. Yes, if she refuses to wear a head covering, she should cut off all her hair. But since it's shameful for a woman to have her hair cut or her head shaved, she should wear a covering. So in the first century, from what I understand, it was dishonorable for a man to have his head covered while praying out loud or prophesying. We'll spend more time in the coming weeks when we get on spiritual gifts. I'm not even going to take the time to start talking about, well, what's prophesying and how's that different from preaching or is it different? I can kick that ball further down the field and deal with that when it comes. Um, but it, it was dishonorable for a man to have his hair covered when he did this. Um, apparently a woman praying without a covering on her head was dishonorable. To whom? Uh, also, apparently a woman with her hair cut off, I'm not really sure what that means. Is that kind of Sinead O'Connor bald or a short pixie cut? I'm not really sure. But that was considered uh, dishonorable. Thus, there's the shame angle. And all of these things are what people are assuming by the appearance that they see while somebody's participating in worship service. Uh, 2012, when were you married, Scotty? 2012? Is that it? December? I remember it. It was, a, it was a tough night. Anyhow, at that wedding, Justine's lifelong friend Katie was one of the bridesmaids. Katie's this cute little short brunette with long curly hair, and she was dolled up as a, as a uh, uh, bridesmaid. And one of the things they got for their pictures is somebody Janine knew had all these vintage fur coats so they had donated those for the photos. So the girls had all these cool little vintage fur coats. And Katie was all dressed up. And, you know, she had eyelashes that you could probably clean the inside of the windshield with when she's wearing it. And then sometime during the reception in downtown Toronto, Katie needed to get something. She realized she had left her purse or a computer in the car in underground parking. And it's late at night. And she needed to go out quickly and get it. I don't know where Ty was, her her. Uh, fiance, but uh, I said, I'll take you, Katie. Now, part of this story is it's on Lower Jarvis Street. If you know anything about Toronto, Jarvis Street's kind of famous for its night culture. And so Katie and I come out in the winter in the dark, and here's 50-year-old me and little Katie with her fur coat and her big eyelashes and her hair all. And we're at the, we're at the corners, and people are kind of like, 
looking at us like, what is going on here? And I go, Katie, I think people are misunderstanding our relationship. And then I walk her into an underground parking lot, right? So people are looking at and they're making assumptions based on the appearance and the culture we're in and where we are. A little distracting from the glory of my daughter's wedding never to this day. So Paul's kind of making a point here that the way we kind of uh, appear can be distracting. You know, 2,000 years later, if I said I was at a church last weekend on my holidays and there were girls on the worship team that looked like prostitutes, how did you just fill in that blank? You know, it, I don't think it would just be that they had short hair, but apparently in this culture, that, that was a thing. That was a something. And it also would be, uh, there's another thing going on in here where it's like, you know what? Paul's been talking about people saying, I'm free in Christ. I've got freedom in Christ. I'm saved by faith. It doesn't matter what I do with my body. And in that culture, a woman cutting her hair like that was like, you know what? My husband is not the boss of me. I'm independent of him. I do my own thing. I am woman, hear me roar. You know, that's what people would be assuming by how her hair was cut. Now, I don't think from anything that I've read that this imaginary woman we're talking about would be under church discipline for cutting her hair too short. But in a worship service, Paul's saying, we don't want anybody that's observing this to be distracted and misreading the relationships that we have and this message of who's really the boss in our culture, in our world. So I think that's a lot of what Paul's getting at around here. I think the challenge in every generation is to not ignore that what we wear in public worship services could become a distraction or a contradiction of the message being delivered, along with we don't want to be perceived as rebelling openly against God's design for us as men and women. You know, here's this line Paul says, isn't it obvious in this culture that it's dishonorable for a man to have long hair? I can't be sure of this, but I think it probably would also be a little scandalous that most of the men in here are clean-shaven. I, I, I wonder if in the first century that wouldn't be kind of a gender-bending kind of move, that a guy shaved his face clean, to, that, that, that in their culture that made a, might have made him look more womanly. I'm not positive of that. It would be worth looking into. These are the kind of things that culturally you know, it could be around this whole idea. We don't want to be seen as openly rebelling against God's design for us as men and women. Let's consider the next verse, this glory and authority idea, or try to. A man should not wear anything on his head when worshiping, for man is made in God's image and reflects God's glory, and woman reflects man's glory. For the first man didn't come from woman, but the first woman came from man, and man was not made for woman, but woman was made for man. For this reason, and because the angels are watching, a woman should wear a covering on her head to show she is under authority. Again, remember in this passage that men in a worship service, worship service should also be displaying that they're under authority. Now, we're going to get to that a little bit later in a, in a gospel passage I want to close with. Again, there's, despite all the discussions and debates about, that exist about authority or source, if the authority over means preeminence or value or importance, then it's really confusing that that's what Paul's saying because he just spent 10 chapters talking about the problem of the knowledge people thinking they're stronger than the weak and elitists and who would eat with who and who's 
greater than somebody or who's, I'm, I'm a fan of this guy while well, I'm a fan of this teacher and all of these power struggles going on. It would be interesting if that was what Paul was really trying to um, go on about. The elitist competitive lording over attitudes in this congregation were already a problem, especially the strong over the weak. But there are lines of authority being delineated in this passage. Back in verse 11, 1, remember when I said, Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But Paul is saying he's under authority. He's not a complete free agent. Paul's not saying, imitate me, I do whatever I want. Be like me. Paul's saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Did Christ alter his behavior, appearance, freedoms, rights, indifference to his calling from God, which would ultimately end up on a cross for the sake of God's plan? Yes, he did. Was Paul, did he ever alter his behavior, appearance, freedoms, rights as a result of his calling? Yes, he did that willingly. But we would say also, if we know his life story, painfully at times. And he did that so that he would not distract from what really mattered. So that he would not distract from what really mattered. These are men and women called, according to chapter 1, verse 2, to be his own holy people. His own holy people. So in order to be that kind of people, we're going to have to alter our behavior, appearance, freedoms, and rights in such a way that keep the main thing the main thing. So again, what does that mean today? Fashions and what they mean change over time. There are so many cultural differentiations about what's male and what are female or masculine and feminine appearances, traits. Those things also change. Uh, we need to be careful in claiming moral, spiritual significance to cultural stereotypes of what defines masculineness and feminists and, and male and female, these, this way that God's created us. I already mentioned the beard idea, but if we could had a time machine and we could put Paul in one and have him materialize into about the fifth or sixth row at Renaissance this morning, um, I'm pretty sure he'd find a lot of things to be extremely distracting and confusing about the way we dress and our appearances. Like, that would be quite a culture shock for the Apostle Paul to be just dropped in here. Um, he'd have no tools to figure out if one person was dressed in an incredibly flashy way that they, he wouldn't know if they were trying to make themselves look far more affluent than they really were. Um, he would have no way of knowing. Um, I'm going to pick on Stephen. He would, maybe if Stephen was up here playing bass in his jeans and his T-shirt and his claw and his Crocs. I was going to call him clogs. He's not, he's not a clogger. His Crocs. But uh, just think about it. The Apostle Paul might see that. Uh, you know, let's pretend he had some sense of 2023 styles. He has no way of knowing, no tools to know um, is Stephen just trying to uh, um, start a fight with a legalist that thinks she should have a suit and a tie on? Or is that just the way he's comfortable? Maybe there could be an even bigger reason. He might think, you know what? Brooklyn is already white-collar, materialistic, success-driven enough that I'm going to dress in such a way that if a person of more humble background would come to my church, they wouldn't feel psyched out because everybody's dressed like the banker. And I, I just, I, I'm not, I'm not, well, I, that's not my people. I, I don't fit in there. I don't know. The Apostle Paul, these are all complicated things, right? It's interesting to think that when it comes to modesty and dress and a lot of those 
uh, things that are spoken of in Scripture, we automatically go to the scandalous. And that's pretty obvious. Like, you know, whatever the cultural um, standard of when a person's trying to dress seductively, um, you know, there are standards like that. Even people on the street would know, oh, they're trying to dress seductively. That would be inappropriate in worship. Uh, there are lines and standards where somebody's trying to hide their maleness or somebody's trying to hide their femaleness and, and, and they're actually in a costume trying to look the other way. That would be inappropriate and confusing in worship. It would not show that we celebrate and, and are under God's authority and how he's created us in male and female. These are all... Uh, difficult things, but, but the, 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 the issue is usually not even that when it talks about modesty. It's more of that idea of trying to look wealthy and, and all the classism. That's what would be scandalous about a regular first century church gathering. It's like, I don't understand how these people in different classes and economic slaves and free people all together worshiping as if they're all, as if the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Uh, I think he would need a little time to figure out how uh, styles have changed. We don't have time machines, but we do have calendars. And we live in a particular period of time. Visitors to our church should be able to tell that we're carrying out our relationships in such a way that emphasize that Jesus is the center of all life rather than uh, the cultural or uh, gender wars or whatever's going on outside in the world. You know, a man should not appear to be wishing he were seen as a woman and vice versa. But it goes far beyond this, those shallow, not shallow, but those surface appearances because our bodies do matter. That's the theme of our Sunday night study. I could ask you men, how do you treat women at Renaissance in your conversations with them? in the way you interact and treat them? Do they feel, as you see in verse 11, as inter interdependent part of the gospel ministry, the displaying of Jesus as the center of all life that we do here? Women, a lot of things here are, are uh, difficult for, for you to hear in this passage. I, I just wrote this paragraph this week. Someday, for all eternity, you will experience womanhood in all of its intended creation glory in a new earth where that new earth and you and those men will all be remade. I say that because we're all living in an age and a time in the in-between stage where we're trying to display something and we're doing it imperfectly, and one day that'll be made perfect. In the meantime, and sometimes that can be too much mean and too little time, can you carry your cross in such a way that shows you too are willing to lay aside rights, freedoms, and behaviors for the sake of Christ and his gospel. And in that way, you would also be imitating Christ, Paul, who imitates Christ. Men and women in a church congregation, are we willing to expend significant effort and sacrifice to try to do all of this to the very best of our abilities in a way that honors God and honors God's order, and honors God's design for male and female. If we did that, it would bring us back to something I hinted at earlier. In a world that in this generation is rapidly restructuring itself around the concept of personhood theory, and apologies for our Sunday night crowd, you've been getting this for weeks. 
personhood theory is who I am as a person has nothing to do with my physical body. It has nothing to do how, with how God created me. It's like, I'm this person. That's just this idea, this thing on the inside and on the outside. That's completely, that's just not the Christian worldview. God created us, male and female. A congregation interacting in such a way, that's gonna stick out more and more like a total spectacle. Um, as if maleness and femaleness is how they were made and who they were. And it's also gonna show that they're under authority from above, and that's even celebrated. What do you call it when you're celebrating that you're under the authority of someone from above? We call that worship. Remember our Exodus story? Let my people go that they may worship me. That's why we were set free. There's that word again. Worship is not merely a giant thank you for the services rendered by the great provider. It's not merely compliments for the things about God or his son or spirit that we find enjoyable. It's also a regular recognition of his authority over and above all. We sometimes say things like he's the name above all names. I just want to turn quickly to a little story from Matthew chapter 20. I was reading this in my reading this week and I thought, you know what? This really applies to this strange story, a strange passage we're going to be looking at. And in Matthew 20, Jesus is getting pretty close to going to the cross. In Matthew 20, verse 17, he basically says, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Sunday man is going to be betrayed to the leading priests and teachers of the religious law. They will sentence him to die. They'll hand him over. He's going to be mocked, flogged with a whip, crucified. On the third day, he'll raise. Then the mother of James and John... The sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with their sons, and she knelt respectively to ask a favor. What is your request, he asked. She replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit at places of honor next to you, one on your right and one on your left. Like, was there ever a more inappropriate question at a time like that? Power struggle, who's a toss? Who's gonna be most preeminent below Jesus? Jesus says uh, in chapter 20, um, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering? And the, the, both the, now, the, now the sons speak up. Oh, yes, they replied, we're able. Jesus says something interesting. He says, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup. But look at, listen to this. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. My father has prepared those places for the ones he's chosen. With all that we've known about the preeminence of Christ and Jesus is fully God, equal with God, worthy of worship, glory, all of that. There's one little hint of Jesus saying, I've got a lane. My, I, I stay in my lane, and I don't come out of my lane. So if we want to gripe and complain about authority and relationships and who's the boss of who and all of those things, here's another way to go God and Jesus men and women. Jesus had a lay. He says, you know, the rulers in the world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. May that never be the culture of male and female relationships in our church. You got it in red letters right there. That's, that's the way the world does things. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. 
For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. I don't think there's any conflict between Paul and Jesus, which some people try to make falsely. Um, There's that authority theme. People in their lanes, but all those lanes point to God. As King of kings, Lord of lords, and we as his people. So however you're going to unpack this male-female relationships and how they relate to one another within the community of faith, please keep in mind. The big question is how we relate to one another. Does it point to Christ? Does it to reveal to the world that we're not all free agents doing our own thing, but we are together under one Lord and part of his kingdom, which means he's a king and we're not. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, these are difficult words. They're hard for us to understand. You're the God of all eternity, but for us, 2,000 years is a long time. Lord, I pray that our passion will always be to remember, uh, practice, and pass on your word, your plan, your gospel, and even your authority. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. For more information, please visit brooklynrbc.ca. The link is also in our bio. On behalf of the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn, we pray you have a blessed week.